Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi there. I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Hangstain Wretches. That's right, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. And Eliana Johnson, I got to tell you, the I don't want to be like the Washington. I, I realize that I've been being like the Washington Post, which is for people who do not live in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. We have had a shockingly pleasant spring. It's still not hot. The weather's really lovely. Nate Moore is wearing a light sweater still. You know you know how good it is climate-wise. And what I've been saying is, oh, you just wait, though. Any minute now, it'll be a million degrees, blah, blah, blah. And I say this is a fat American where hardest hit uh, of the months of July and August. And I realize that I'm being Washington Post-like. I should just be enjoying the moment and allowing people to enjoy the moment and not responding to their glad tidings about the weather by saying that it will eventually be hot and we will all die. I think if you start the podcast talking about the weather, it's like bad. You don't understand. That's bad zhuzh, bad, bad karma. My zhuzh is excellent. <laughs> I have peak zhuzh today. Right um, I, My zhuzh is peaking. I hate talking about the weather. You're from the upper Midwest. You're supposed to be deeply versed. You're supposed to be deeply rooted in talking about the weather. Maybe that's why. It's a, it's oh my a gosh, she, that's what it does to me. Oh my I, gosh. Okay. It just, All right. I, oh. we're, I, I'm, I'm not going to take any lectures about the theatrics <laughs> of podcast openings by a person who has a yawn like a bear cub in, <laughs> in, the, in the opening discussion. So we'll just say that. And, that was like one of the best compliments I've ever gotten. <laughs> yawn like a bear cub. But you could see that if you were watching us on YouTube. Oh my gosh. So. Segway. Probably about three of you actually click in and watch the YouTube video, but oh. apparently many more than that like to know that the video of the podcast exists out there out there in the ether. So producer Colin, Colin has heard you loud and clear yeah. and told us that we must continue. That's right. I must continue blowing out my hair and well, showing fabulous. up dressed appropriately. I make up 10 out of 10. <laughs> you should do a tutorial video on how to oh my gosh that would be like my dream job i'm i so my my dream inkstained wretches episode is where we do it all in morning drive time radio right so it's like el wretchos get ready like with sound effects honking horns the whole thing and yours can be it's a it's a fashion and makeup tutorial that would be fun i don't think i'm equipped to do fashion but maybe i could do a little little makeup because when I did TV mm -hmm. and these wizards were like turning you in from a wreck into a presentable person, I would always stop them and be and ask, what are you doing? What are you using? Explain it to me. So I learned I all their tricks. Even as a dude, when it's good, it's great. When you I learned TV all makeup, their tricks. It is great. Almost lifelike. Okay. Chris. Yes. First of all, I want to say at the top, 
We are going to talk about the Durham report. I wanted to talk about it yes. first, but it is going to be my obsession because I am probably a lot more passionate about it than Chris is. We'll find out. We'll find out, but it is going to be my obsession, so don't think we're just breezing past it. In fact, one of us, maybe two of us, is obsessed with it, so we will get there. But first, on our front page... These are the stories that we thought were most important this week. Caitlin Collins promoted at CNN. In fact, Chris, we talked last week about whether the Trump town hall would derail that. And I think I said, oh, come on, it's not going to have any impact on whether or not she's promoted because nobody could have corralled that and turned it into something other than it was. So we hear from the Wall Street Journal that Caitlin Collins, the CNN anchor who moderated the network's recent town hall with former President Donald Trump, will take over as the host of its 9 p.m. hour starting in June, network boss Chris Licht said in an email to staff Wednesday. Collins's new program, which will officially launch this summer, will include reporting and perspective on major news stories, Licht said in the email. The 31-year-old Collins has emerged as a rising star at CNN. Her appointment is Lick's latest attempt to reshape the network's programming since he became the network's chief executive a little over a year ago. During the past three years, Collins has served as the network's chief White House correspondent, morning show anchor, and now primetime host. I'm meh. You're meh? I mean, I don't think it's a big programming move in that Caitlin, during the Zucker era, was central to Trump coverage. She was a star at the network. It is a sign that all of the partisan primetime voices, those guys are gone and they're being replaced with, you know, sort of center left news coverage. But I'm still looking for the new people. More than just Charles Barkley one night a week. Yeah, uh, I, I am excited about that. I, I think. I think it is fair to say that given the right time slot. She can do an excellent job. She's a talented broadcaster. And Definitely. She has poise and all, all of that can be true. I've noticed the creepy fixation on her by some on right wing or whatever wing media in the in the wake of the Trump town hall, a clip of her appearing on Fox News where she talked about George Soros was endlessly recycled and the this this is the, this is the good news, bad news. The the bad news is it's terrible to endure. The good news is if she can be a figure of controversy without being a controversialist, then this is good for ratings. Right. So if the controversy that she stirs up is by be, trying to play it straight and be normal, which is what she's managed, the controversies that she has endured so far have been either Donald Trump misbehaving toward her. Don Lemon misbehaving toward her. And in both cases, it has been that she has been kept her chin up and has tried to do a womanful job in these situations and do a good job of it. That's if you're going to benefit by controversy, can you do it without being a controversialist and and descending into trolling for it and begging for it? I think she can. And if they set her up to succeed, I bet she will. I agree. That's a good point. And Yes. Now those on the on the right, like the far right, are she d worked at the Daily Caller at one point, are trying to resurrect her television clips from when she was 22, 23 years old and say, look, she was a crazy right winger and now she's laundered herself. And there's like a little bit of truth to that. But 
I mean, give me a break. You know, she was 22, 23 years old, and she's the, it's 10 years ago. Yeah, I think that's stupid. Right. Stupid. Anderson Cooper gave a tongue lashing to the left wing critics of that town hall. Well, why don't we play the, should we play the clip? Let's take a listen to 360. Now, many of you think CNN shouldn't have given him any platform to speak, and I understand the anger about that, giving him the audience, the time. I get that. But this is what I also get. The man you were so disturbed to see and hear from last night, that man is the frontrunner for the Republican nomination for president. And according to polling, no other Republican is even close. That man you were so upset to hear from last night, he may be president of the United States in less than two years. And that audience that upset you, that's a sampling of about half the country. Okay, I think it's fair to say that Anderson Cooper has done a better job of that kind of thinking than some of his co colleagues at CNN. And if that is the, look, well, we talk more about that, but if that's the energy of the licked pivot, and I do like saying licked pivot. If that if that is the energy behind the licked pivot, where you have to see and acknowledge people who think differently than you, then that's a that's that's reasonable energy. He also said, "I understand if you never watch CNN again." And he 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 tried to have it both ways a little yeah. bit. But what about Bill Salmon? But what about Bill Salmon? What about my former boss, Bill Salmon, writing in the New York Times? A Bill Salmon, by the way, a great writer publisher of or the author of five best-selling books and longtime White House correspondent whose name I had not I used to edit Bill Salmon when we were at the Washington Examiner I hadn't seen his name in print in many moons uh, and there well in print that he had written and in many moons and here he was coming to CNN's defense talking about this town hall and I will link to the piece from the Times what with the first Republican primary debate scheduled for August he wrote, we need to confront this and some other uncomfortable questions now. Is American democracy so fragile that we cannot metabolize the outlandish views of a presidential candidate? If a candidate is the subject of serious investigation, shouldn't the news media ask him about that? Are our ideas of journalism so degraded that providing airtime to a candidate is tantamount to an endorsement? I agree very much with Bill on the question of the over-the-top reaction to CNN doing this. On the other hand, I also, if I were Chris Licht, I would not have done this town hall. And I wouldn't have done, there's certainly, it's journalistically defensible. Certainly you can make an argument for why this is good or why this is acceptable, but I just wouldn't want to do it because we knew what was going to happen and it happened. And I don't think much light was shed. Trump, Trump is unfact-checkable. He's uninterviewed. The close, the closest person I've ever seen to come to effectively interviewing Donald Trump was Jonathan Swan. That was the one interview with Donald Trump that I can say that I've seen where I was like, oh, that was that was pretty because even when Chris Wallace, even when good interviewers have tried to take Trump to task in the past, he's a good he's a very good television actor, right? And the persona that he knows how to play, and he just doesn't he he doesn't. He rejects the premise of the question. He rejects the premise of the questioner. He rejects everything. And I find it tedious. That was my takeaway, that it's very difficult to conduct a television interview with him that is good television because you have to spend the whole time saying, as, as Caitlin Collins tried to do, well, that's not true. That's not true. That, and, and it's not good television. It's not. It's just. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's tough. Yes. Okay. Who else has primetime ratings problems?
Wait. Or, or would you want to do wait, that? Wait, wait. Yes. And this is what Trump does with it, which is he is talented. It's amusing. So the, Trump's campaign capitalized on the CNN interview and said <laughs> in a tweet, President Trump's CNN town hall was so masterful that many are now saying many are now saying his favorite formulation. People yet. are saying that's right. CNN should be renamed TNN, the Trump News Network. And then, you know, they have a T-shirt. This is TNN with Trump and sunglasses. You know, they're they, they know how to not do it. stupid. Yes. This is alarming because I just opened up Twitter and one of the to look at this and one of the trending items is Mount St. Helens. And I'm here to tell you. That's not what you want to see trending. So no. if much of the West Coast has been destroyed, we apologize in advance. You were going to say who else is having primetime? Oh, who else is having primetime agita? Well, it's Fox News Channel. As they're trying to figure out what to do about a Tuckerless future. And there was a, a wave of speculation yesterday kicked off by a Drudge Report item that said that the Sean Hannity was going to eight o'clock. Jesse Waters going still there. So the headline of Drudge says sources Fox News Hannity moves to 8 p.m. Waters Gutfeld get primetime network set to shake lineup. And there's no link. It's just Drudge's own reporting. But Laura Ingram, of course, not listed among those not, people. Yes. The hard, hardest hit Laura yes. Ingram, whose show has struggled over time. And so I don't know. Here's here's my guess on this, just to do a little Kremlin, okay. Kremlinology. Okay. This is either Sean Hannity doing this and putting this to drudge and trying to get this story out there, or Fox News floating a trial balloon. What if it was like this? What would people say about that to shake it down a little bit and see what's going on? I think that if you're going to put anybody in that 8 o'clock slot that can do what, because the numbers are Newsmax beating CNN is great news for Newsmax and bad news for CNN, but it's real bad news for Fox, right? If if Newsmax can continue to clock these kinds of numbers that they have since the defenestration of Tucker Carlson, this creates a real problem for Fox News. The problem that I think, if I guess that's a, this is a long way of saying that if I were Fox News, I would be looking at Gutfeld for that eight o'clock slot I think you need controversy. I think you need I think you need somebody to be a troublemaker in that spot and you need them to generate interest. I don't think Hannity fits that bill. I think he is he is the early bird buffet. He he is the most predictable of their broadcasters. He is a he is a a 100% known commodity who does not have the capacity to surprise. Putting Gutfeld in that slot, I think, is the sort of interesting thing that CNN is like grasping for. Right. Where he was a middle of the night comedy guy, and he, I, I do think he's somebody, somebody, and something who could really take off. He's not conventional in any way, and I think it could be pretty interesting. I think it comes with considerable risks, but this to is to do anything that's going to be right. a hit. Tucker was so risky. Yes. But that's why I think there could be a lot of payoff to it. Yes. Hannity is like the worst of those options. Oh, my gosh. Stale. Oh, yeah. It's it's like totally unexciting. You've got you've got to you've got to want it. You you have to want to be watching Fox to to find that interesting. OK. What else you got? OK. Well, I think we need to debate this tweet. From Roger Ailes's widow, Elizabeth Ailes. Ew. 
submitted with much comment. I have much comment, okay? Elizabeth Ailes sent this out into the Twitter sphere. Happy heavenly birthday, Roger Ailes. It took you 20 years to build Fox News into the powerhouse that it was and only six years for the Murdochs to wreak havoc. Rupert thought he could do your job. What a joke. He has the checkbook, but could never come close to your genius. R.I.P. And then the coverage of it in the Daily Beast. Karma is a bitch, colon. Roger Ailes' widow goes off on Fox News. She picked up the phone when the Daily Beast called her and sat for an interview. And the Daily Beast writes that Elizabeth Ailes mocked current News Corp CEO Lachlan Murdoch, saying, I was told he's a spear fisherman. I don't know if he spends time in the office. And recalling how Roger used to refer to brothers James Murdoch and Lachlan as Tweedledum and Tweedledumber, respectively. Wow. But she saved most of her ire for the patriarch, Rupert Murdoch, whom she described as a jealous man who fired her husband because Roger eclipsed Rupert on the world stage. Hadn't heard that one before. That's an interesting reason for his dismissal. But she further likened Carlson's firing to her late husband's ouster, Hmm. claiming the Murdochs, quote, figured out how to chop his head when he became too big. That's what the Murdochs did to Roger, Bill O'Reilly, Eric Bowling, and they did it to Tucker. It's an interesting inclusion of yes, Eric Bowling really in is. that rundown. Yes. Elizabeth recalled a time when Rupert sought solace in my house after discovering then-wife Wendy Deng's alleged affair with British PM Tony Blair. She did her best Murdoch impression while recounting how he only wanted to eat sushi instead of her selections of tomato soup and bologna sandwiches and how he would nod off on her beautiful recliners. Tomato soup and bologna sandwiches. I don't. I know. just. I just want to say. If it's a fried bologna sandwich. This. Maybe. This is what I wanted to debate with you. I expect nothing less of my husband. Should I precede him in death, and my employer spurn me? Well, first of all, you'll never be spurned. You'll okay. Never be spurned. I expect nothing less. I want him like out there, being vengeful and fighting for my honor. Like Elizabeth Ailes. Well, my hope for Jessica, my person, would be that she would release any resentments that I have. Oh not my been gosh! Able, oh, Chris, you got to be a good person. That I have not. Been able to. <laughs> I've worked hard to release the resentments that I have carried myself. I would hope that she would feel free. Never. Of all of those. I hope that she would Never. feel free of all of those, and that she would only have the good memories of our time together. Because obviously I will predecease her by some considerable amount of time that she will do that and that she will. Jessica's goal of going on to become a tiny little old lady who wears big chunky jewelry and strange glasses and goes to the Metropolitan Opera. I I hope that she is living that life with perhaps a handbag dog. I don't know. I mean, she'd probably want to have one of those miniature horses in her apartment in New York. But I hope she lives that life unburdened by any of the travails that I have endured in life. Well, sorry to my husband. <laughs> He's going to carry my weights around his but ankles. But you're going to live to be 130, oh 135 gosh. years old. By the time you die, you'll be so little that you'll just evaporate. You'll just you'll just float off into, into the dust. Okay, well, what do you make of, of Elizabeth Ailes? I think I... Sorry, I asked you a question, then answered it. Thing, the thing I'm really struck by is that obviously Roger was not a faithful husband. No. And that nonetheless, she does not seem bothered by that. She's very loyal. So 
the thing about being right about something doesn't make you right about everything. And she makes a very good point. Yes. About the jealousy that Rupert Murdoch obviously felt about Fox News, which he had created, but that he he had created, but really Roger Ailes invented, right? He created the space for it, but it was really Roger Ailes who did it. And Roger Ailes ran it much better than Murdoch did, except for at the end. And this is what this narrative forgets. And what this narrative forgets is that by the closing years of his time at Fox News, he was a badly diminished figure. And he was diminished because of those problems, that his personal problems. Mm-hmm. Those were the things that brought Rupert or Roger Ailes down. And if he had not been corrupted in that way, that the American political history would have a different tenor to it today. And but I do not expect the widow of a man to say, well, it's complicated, right? Well, it's interesting because on you would think that the widow of his widow would be most acutely aware that his personal problems played this outsized role in. But if you create a permission structure for people, this is the problem with monster making, right? If you if you create permission structures for people in which they are allowed to misbehave because of what they're doing is really important, what do you get? You get a lot more misbehavior. And the lesson of the first the Fox News sex scandals and then the Me Too movement that that rolled through the news business, Mark Halperin, Charlie Rose, like you can list them off, was when you create monsters, when you create monsters, they will behave monstrously, right? And if you give them this kind of space in which to operate, they will indeed misbehave. This is, should not be a surprising thing. And the lesson is, you know, in, in, a, in a world of creepos, be a Neil Cavuto, right? In the, in the world of the bad guys. And, you know, I, I, may I live long enough that I can be a Cavuto-like figure in this world of a person who knows who he is and is connected to terra firma and does not get high on his own supply. Okay. Just so you know. Yeah. I abhor the term permission structure for whatever reason. I'm... It's like triggered. Oh, okay. Well, I... We should make a dictionary of, or like a list of... How about a rubric? Would you accept a rubric? <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. a rubric. Be careful of of, yes. of having a rubric. Okay, hit hit us, Chris. Oh, my colleague here at the American Enterprise Institute, Tim Carney, with a excellent Tim. I don't know whether Tim has always done this much media criticism, but of late he has been in a in a, in a in a sweet spot, and I think this is coming from also his experience as a, as a real bona fide New Yorker. Subway death coverage confirms that in the liberal bubble, only conservatives are political. Here's what Tim writes. Yes, it's an expert say and conservatives pounce story, which means it is simply just a liberal opinion piece disguised as a news story. That's not shocking. What's shocking is how banal the central opinion is in this thinly veiled opinion piece. He's talking here. I want to we should link to the piece itself. And it's a piece in The Washington Post headlined conservatives hail Daniel Penny as quote hero after killing man on subway. So this is this is the underlying piece and we will include that in the show notes as well. But here here's what Tim goes on to say. The thing is that crime and disorder are on the rise, especially in the New York City subway, but also in other cities around the country. This is a valid political point because public policy is almost assuredly behind the rise in crime. 
Consider the decriminalization of minor subway crimes, the triumph of progressive prosecutors, and the COVID lockdowns, which ruin the lives of people who, in turn, take up anti-social behavior and other policies. Yet to the Washington Post, conservative politicians talking about the disorder and crime amounts to politicizing something. Quote, Penny's case has been injected into the bloodstream of partisan politics, the article argues. And the headline makes clear the injection is being administered by conservatives like DeSantis. And I think this is a point that you made in the trans discussion. I think this is a, a look. There are times when there is injection of politics going on into non-political things that definitely happens. And it is impossible to almost impossible to escape such injections these days in any matter, whether it is Martha Stewart doing her version of 80 for Brady for the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition or whatever, politics comes into all these things. But crime policy, I think you will agree, is political because it, it's policy. That's what it is. And I think Tim makes an excellent point there. The other way the media politicizes coverage of this is that they focus on one subset of crime and not and, and not choose not to focus on the other. So they say, well, murder rates are actually lower. Mass murder rates are lower. But it's actually these petty crimes that people are responsive to, the ones that affect their day to day lives, which is petty theft. This, these sorts of like, you know, rail jumping in subways, auto theft. It is these smaller crimes that like create create a sense of chaos and disorder in cities, not actually violent crime right like armed robbery and murder and so it's very misleading to public cite, defecation to, yeah for example yeah is it's, that... it's misleading to cite figures like that and it is the crimes that they've stopped going after and one and we've this this is a theme that we've talked about many many times or i've talked about many many times and i'm sorry for having to do it again but here's how a partisan media makes the parties weaker is crime is not a bad issue for democrats Right. The we just had the mayoral election in Jacksonville, Florida. The Democrat won in part by prosecuting the Republican incumbent on crime problems in Jacksonville. She did not shy away. She did not shy away from crime. She leaned in on the question and won. And the more that so it's sort of like this when Republicans when when right wing media says tells untruths or elides about questions of racism or elides around questions of uh, how abortion policy is being received or these other things, it creates blind spots for the party that ostensibly they're trying to serve. The same is true about crime and other issues for the left-wing media and Democrats. We saw it effulgently with the Black Lives Matter and defund the police movement, and it continues to be so. It's fine for Democrats or anyone to support the prosecution of the man who put the disturbed and disordered subway rider in a chokehold. It is fine to support that prosecution, but that is not the same as then saying, and why is everybody talking about crime all the time? Why, what, what is this Republican obsession with crime? That's, those are two very different things. I also think the media coverage of that is so off from like the general public yeah. sentiment and total, the public perception yes. about it. That's my, that's because my point. We've all we've all been on public transit where you've seen somebody like this and it is scary. When was um, the last time you were on public transit? Well, okay, true. Fair. <laughs> fair. But I did live in New York for eight years. Know, that's know, totally fair. I, I did live in New York for eight years. Stuff does happen. And also 
there, the, you know, we see people on the streets walking around who are mentally ill, obviously. I got to get the plug in. And it is alarming. I got to get the plug in. Two years, two or three years too late, I finished Amity Schley's Great Society oh, book. Yes. And it's amazing. If you have not read, it's so good. I'm a Schley's stan, and it's so good. And her discussion about the loss of the cities in the 1960s and 1970s and how that all went down rings way, way, way too true to what's going on today. So how about, would you would you like to have a matched set of credenzas from the New York Times? I bet you would. No, I would not. Here, so the New York Times, kudo, here's a kudo to the New York Times for telling hard truths. Headline, a refugee from another time gets an eviction notice. A Ukrainian immigrant, 82, has lived in a Manhattan hotel for decades. Now the owners want him out while earning millions from the city to house others. And this is the story of a refugee dude, William McHugh, who has lived in this flophouse hotel at a cost of $6,000 a month. I think that's right. Can that be right? No, I'm sorry. The city has is paying $6,000 a month for all of the rooms in this hotel. And he is one of the folks who has lived there. I believe he's a veteran too, but whatever the case, he's getting the boot. Why is he getting the boot? Because the owner has a more lucrative contract to house new refugees that are coming in. And it's a story about the displacement of people who were previously in the safety net. Also, it's probably something about how the safety net did not work. If you were living in a flop house, a government subsidized flop house hotel for decades, but kudos to the New York Times for telling a story that challenges popular narratives about migrants and migration and the Biden policy and the Biden administration's policies. Okay, and I guess that was a one-off because well, it's, um, I said it's matching. It's bookends. My, yes. yes. All right. We we talked about on the podcast the fact that there was great controversy at the New York Times when several of its reporters and other employees who are not reporters signed an activist letter to the paper assailing its coverage of transgender issues because the Times had written about the fact that gender reassignment care and hormone therapy for minors is controversial. And they've covered these controversies. So the Times ha apprised its employees that they are not to sign on to activist letters criticizing the journal, the paper's own journalism and the paper's own reporters. Anyhow, it appears nonetheless that the activist message got through loud and clear because this is a story that ran this week. The headline is how a few stories of regret fuel the push to restrict gender transition care. And the story is basically about how, you know, it's just a few people who transition and then regret it. Or basically, it's just a few of those people who become political activists and decide to make a career warning people about the dangers of gender transition. And yet, like, politicians are focusing on these people and making such a big deal of their stories. And it's it's so confusing as to why that is. Basically, they're saying these people are getting outsized attention. Right. So they write, as Republican-controlled state legislatures have passed over a dozen bills banning transition care for minors this year and have moved to restrict care for adults, 
Ms. Cole, who's one of these people who regrets transitioning, and fewer than 10 activists like her, people who transitioned and then changed course, have become the faces of this cause. Really strange. Really strange. According to a New York Times review of news coverage and legislative testimony, leading medical groups in the United States, including the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Medical Association, say transition care should be available to minors and oppose legislative bans. Many experts say policymakers should ensure access to high-quality care, including through individual evaluations to determine which treatments are appropriate and at what age. Leaders in the conservative movement say it's important to amplify the voices of people who feel they have been misled by doctors and want to warn others. Anyhow, really puzzling why conservatives would focus on just a few of the people who have transitioned and regret this choice. The complaint is that we want you to focus on this very small number of people, not the small number of people within the small group of people. We want you to focus on this statistically, and I, they're not insignificant as people, but not a, it's not a, they're important as people, but in terms of what's demographically happening in the country and what's going on, this is not a primary concern, right? This is, we, I, we, I, I, I will speak for myself and say, I love all people. I want them to achieve their their dreams in life. But the amount of emphasis that has been placed on the issue of gender dysphoria, first on the left and then on the right, has been totally out of whack with the consequences inside the broader society. And I find it very interesting that what this piece basically says is, we want you to isolate and focus on this very small group, but not the small group within the small group. We only we want you to go here and then stop. You have to just drill down to this tiny number and then stop before you go any further. And by the way, there's research, and I'm not going to try to cite it because I will fail and and do, do not wish to be wrong, but there are significant numbers of people who have struggled with this question after going through a transition. And there's studies inside the military about, and this is a good control group for, because access to care is not a problem if you're in the military, but people are dissatisfied or stop transitioning and all of that stuff. This is an enormously complicated question. And we are treating it, if, you, if you'll pardon the pun, as a binary, as, as a binary choice. It is not that. It is something very different and boo. Beyond that, the appeal to authority with leading medical groups, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, the Free Beacon, we partnered with Barry Weiss's outlet, the Free Press, and we got inside. How did the how exactly did the American Academy for Pediatrics come up with its guidance on gender transition care for minors? And the results there are shocking, but how the Times just casually refers to this is amazing to me. Right. As if as if someone would say that the counter evidence that was provided by the Heritage Foundation, right. so I'd be like, well, as as one knows, as one knows, as one does. Are you ready to talk about Jews in the news? No. No? No. It's time. It's, anything that's like Elon Musk said X on Twitter, I'm not ready to talk about. Why are you Ugh. defending the rank anti-Semitism of talking about how George Soros is like a comic book villain. Ugh. Why Why are you protecting his anti-Semitism, Eliana? Why? Just so, I feel like Elon spouts off all day, every day on Twitter, and it's just. First, can we get somebody to tell me, one of you two gentlemen, to tell me who Magneto is? 
What about Cat Turd? Well, that's a guy on Twitter. But who is Magneto? And don't don't you dare pretend like you don't know who Magneto is, sir. He's just a very popular comic. Is he an X Man? Yeah. Ah, look at me knowing. Look at me knowing over here. So he's an X Man, and he. Oh, and he's a Holocaust survivor. Oh, a layer. You guys know this. A layer. Well, Nate read that in the Wall Street Journal, I assume, but Colin definitely read it in the original. For sure, yeah. Oh my gosh. It just so happens that I may have read several of those editions. But anyway, the the only reason I am making you talk about this is to point out the selective anti-Semitism accusations in the media left and right. And I don't know why Elon Musk said what he said. I don't know why Elon Musk says a lot of things. And I don't know, hearing now from Nate Moore, that there is a Holocaust survival element here. I guess it nudges it a little closer. But the Washington Post writes this big piece about Elon Musk's anti-Semitism. But what about when it's... And so the two-quoke kind of argumentation, the... What, are we, what did we used to... We, we used to say this word constantly. What was it? The, the term in... Oh, my gosh. I can't believe it was a dominant media narrative discussion in 2016. And that is whataboutism. Oh, oh my gosh. Yes. Remember what about if you if you think you hate permission structure, you have no idea how much I hate the phrase what aboutism. So the whataboutist take on talking about anti Semitism, well what about Rashida Talib? Oh yeah, well what about well what about well what about cat turd? Right. And then eventually you're talking about someone named Cat Turd. So it's a it's a fraught space. Okay. That's just gonna be I'm just when I'm out this summer. We'll just have a hot key and you can Chris, press it and Colin and it'll just say it's a fraught space. Oh, my gosh. Chris, we have I'm already ready to do my obsession and we have so many more items to go. But here. it's so good. No, I, I need to go to my obsession. We're, well, are you not going to talk about why you're allowing black people to die prematurely? Why well, are you? We need to do you, that. No wonder you don't to, want to talk to about section. that. You, no wonder you don't we want to talk to about jump that. From that to the style section. Washington Post. Black communities endured wave of excess deaths in past two decades. Studies find by Akalia. I want to Akila. Akila. I want to. I want to share this line. And the picture is of a woman in her own home wearing a mask. Allowing black people to die prematurely is the phrase that she used. America's black communities experienced an excess 1.6 million deaths compared with the white population during the past two decades. A staggering loss that comes at a cost of hundreds of billions of dollars, according to two new studies that build on a generation of research into the health disparities and inequality. In one study, researchers conclude that the gap in health outcomes translated into 80 million years. Oh, I can't see because you have the cursor there of potential life lost years that could have been preserved if the gap between black and white mortality rates had been eliminated. The second report determined the price society pays for failing to achieve health equity and allowing black people to die prematurely. $238 billion in 2018 alone. Oh, my goodness. There is paternalism and then there is paternalism. How much money does the United States in government funds and in private efforts spend on trying to get health care for people? How much how many billions of dollars a year is spent? The premise of this article is that we could do it right. It's doable. We just don't want to. 
We just don't do it. And why don't we do it? Because we're racist. The reason that we don't do it is because we're racist. This is the kind of infantilizing paternalism, and you see it on people on the right with the new nationalism and all of this stuff, but this is divisive. This is misses the point. It misses all of it. And no one's allowing, right? It's it, The idea isn't, oh, we could do it, but we don't want to do it. That's not what's going on here. It's hard. Poor people, and there's a disproportionate number of black people who are poor, poor people struggle to with health care for a lot of reasons. Access to care is an issue, but also lifestyle choices and all kinds of things. And pretending that this is a matter of racism is just the pits. That is really bad. What? Oh, no. Quickly read New York Times. Huge graphic. Giant take. The greatest wealth transfer in history is here with familiar sinister parentheses, rich winners. Well, you want to hear something crazy? You want Eliana, here's something crazy to think about. Old that people, when wealth is transferred, rich people win. Well, w- being rich is cool. And if you have money, your kids are more likely to have money. But here's an even more shocking statistic for you. Old people die more than young people. And I don't know whether you know this, but millennials are in for a big amount of inheritance, way more than other generations. Why? Can, can you tell? Can you summon any reason why millennials would be in line for more, a period of greater inheritance than other generations? Their parents are dying? Is that possible? Is that right, that they're the age that their parents are dying? This is just another in the category of facile, facile, facile thinking, tarted up as data-driven research fooey. One more from the facile files, if you will please continue to Oh my gosh, me. that's such a good section name. Uh, we should have that every week, asso- facile files. Associated Press, how the American dream convinces people loneliness is normal. Dag on, American dream. <laughs> Why are you ruining everybody's life? And this, and I also would like to say to the Associated Press, I don't know why you have people writing pieces like this, but this is not what you are there for. This is for. not what the wire service the was wire created service for. The wire service is not yeah. there for yeah. a think piece from Ted Anthony writing about American culture and international affairs. And he makes a tortured analogy about John Wayne in the movie The Searchers. <clears throat> and how American culture emphasizes loneliness and that, as the Surgeon General tells us, loneliness is the problem, that it's John Wayne and rugged individualism is the is the core problem here. And in pieces inspired by the realities of 1981, this this certainly answers. But I don't think I don't think that's what's going down. I don't think that's I don't think it's the searchers that have caused these problems. And just stop. And The Searchers is a great movie, by the way, we should say. The thing that's kind of amazing to to me about this piece is the, the overwrought writing, which for a wire service yes. is funny. Perhaps many Americans are alone in a crowd, awash in a sea of voices, both physical and virtual, yet by themselves much of the time, seeking community, but suspicious of it. Suspicious. <laughs> Some of the modernizing forces that stitched the United States together in the first place, commerce, communication, roads, are in their current forms part of what isolates people today. Isolation. (laughs) There's a lot of space between the general store and Amazon deliveries to your door, between mailing a letter and navigating virtual worlds, between roads that connect towns and freeways that overrun them. 
So thanks, AP. Could we get the score of the Cardinals game? Yeah. Jeez Louise. Eliana, why are some companies saying diversity and belonging instead of diversity and inclusion? You know what? I think we should have the facile file yes. and the don't care file. Well, and your, your don't care file would be too big. <laughs> yeah, it would It'd be, be too big. We um, would never get through it. File this under don't care. Well, the the allegation is there. there is a claim being made that DEIB, oh my God. That DEIB that is about making white people comfortable rather than addressing systemic inequality. So it's not, I'll tell you how much you don't care about this because not only is it about the new trend, it's about the latent racism of the B, that the B has latently racist components. But fortunately, the New York Times is here on the case. This is, this could have been my favorite. Certainly interesting to me. Wall Street Journal dropping the Mr., the Mrs., the Ms. They're dropping the honorific titles. Where do you stand on? I'm still hung up on this last thing. DIB? Yeah. Um, do wow. you feel belonging on wretches? That is, when I can have my don't care file, I will feel complete belonging. Okay, we want, yes. we, we, we aim for your sense of what we have diversity, we have a man, we have a woman. We have inclusion, obviously, and we have belonging. We will have belonging when we have the don't care file. My, yes. Okay, but what about Mr. Miz and honorifics and the Wall Street Journal? Do you care about that? You know, I do. Does the New York Times all, still do honorifics? I think so. Mr. Miz. I don't even know, but I will say I like the journal's use of them because they, you know, they use different ones and but they drop them after first use right which is was better than the mister throughout and i did not even know nobody about, uses mister throughout anymore do they or maybe the times does i think the times, the times does yeah Here, here's us not knowing there's the don't care file and then there's the don't know file well this is for the don't know file it is i i would say this is a i'm okay with this because i didn't always i didn't really like the honorifics and it's become do you, very famously, the New York Times used to refer to Fidel Castro as Dr. Castro oh, that, that's because good. he had, you know, his doctorate in torture or whatever. And so the, the honorifics are fraught and just use fewer words and get people the information that they need. It is uh, passages. OK. In underwhelming launches of the week, I think this publication, The Messenger, it was so hyped. And I said it was billed as a kind of a, a, as a product that would be combination of the Washington Post and the New York Post, like a tabloid, but for D.C. And I thought, oh, that could be really cool because one of my pet peeves is that nobody kind of does D.C. gossip because all the all the mainstream media like protects they cover for each other. Spotted. Yes. Spotted. Please. So I'll so spot I you that if could you be, spot me. So I thought that could be cool. But anyhow, that is not what this is. So what is The Messenger? Neiman Lab did a write-up of it and says... The Jimmy, thing, Jimmy Finkelstein. It, yes. The, the former owner of The Hill who sold The Hill to my employers at Nexstar and Bob Cusack running the show over there. And Bob is doing a good job. And I really like what's happening at The Hill. And that's all good. So Jimmy Finkelstein started his own thing. And he is spending... They're spending a lot of money to hire people away and and do the, and do that stuff and as you said the, and so the Neiman Lamb says 50 million dollars that they've put into this launch and it was not, it has not been 
it has not been scintillating. It's it's sort of confusing to navigate Here's, if you go on the site. Go ahead. During a one-hour stretch Monday, The Messenger published 27 stories, a new one every 133 seconds over the same span the Times published nine. It's a mismatch. It's a mishmash. And I want the, the, the collection of headlines is, is pretty spectacular. Florida man has been living underwater since March. Breaks world record. Scientists puzzled over mysterious rumbles in Denmark. Al Roker shares health update while recovering from complicated knee surgery. Woman killed after jumping from moving car during fight with boyfriend. Home Depot, Target, and Walmart's earnings this week will say a lot about the U.S. economy. So, And it goes on like that where it is a total mishmash. And it's the, the model at the Hill before was URL generation. And a lot of places have succumbed to this. How much crap can you pump out in the course of a day? And you will you will generate clicks just by it's a, a flypaper effort. Yeah, so I'm on there now, and it's as they have an original interview with Trump that's like their main anchor story. And then if you go to that and it says more news, there's diamond ring found at wastewater plant returned to owner after nearly 13 years. Doctors set Guinness World Record for discovering smallest cancer spot ever, and girl drowns in high school pool during gym class. Who did? Oh, also, Starbucks is switching to Nugget Ice, and people are not happy. <laughs> oh, I like Nugget so, Ice. So I think it's hard. It doesn't have, like, an identity of I'm looking for X, and so I'm going to go to the messenger to get that. Now, there's fair critique here about Mark Caputo, the former Politico. He was Politico and then at NBC News. Yep, and now he's at... Uh, now he's at the messenger. Now he's at, at the messenger, and he got an exclusive interview with Trump and did not ask him about the news right and there's, there's i haven't read the interview so i cannot comment it's it, it does not ask him about the verdict in the carroll case and that is a, a a a pretty wide miss and i don't know what the i don't know what the circumstances of that were and i don't know what his mandate was on this or anything else about it but i think the the inclusion of john solomon in this does not bode well for where this the the John Solomonization of this does not bode well for probably where it's going. I actually know a lot of people involved in it. I like the people I know who are involved in it, but the brand seems a little bit confused from yes. what I can tell. Underwater living and yes. but but before Starbucks you read ice. about the man living un, uh, uh, underwater, how about our exclusive interview with the president? Okay, Chris. Well, we this is we're we're heading into our food section before we hit the style section. Yes. So shouldn't we, we have, have a food section? Why Colin, Americans, by the time we're done today, we're gonna have thirty new sections. We have why Americans are smuggling fruit roll ups into Israel. Why? People want their ice cream to crunch and they're willing to pay. So the trend began when an Israeli, a TikTok influencer, posted a video of herself wrapping a scoop of mango ice cream in a fruit roll up and Americans were caught carrying a suitcase filled with more than 185 pounds of fruit roll-ups, part of a haul wow. of nearly 375 pounds, um, because the fruit roll-ups will crunch if they if you wrap ice cream in them. Do they freeze? Is that I think the they thing? freeze, yeah. It's like the old yes, magic exactly. shell? So why, why does it... All right, all right, I'm going to play the video. Okay. All right, hold on. It's Saturday night, and I'm going to have my sweet guilty pleasure. My food roll-ups, I buy them in boxes and bunches. I get them from Amazon. They come in packages like this. You can buy them anywhere. 
I buy them in Amazon because uh, from Amazon because it comes like in 18 or 36 boxes. I have this and I'm gonna have some ice cream inside. That's crazy. Yeah. I never thought about how quickly a fruit roll-up could freeze. Wow. Okay. Way to go, Israel. So that's the trend. Well, how come the Israelis won't allow more fruit roll-ups into Israel? What's going on with that? I think, I don't know if it's allow. It's, uh, they just don't sell them there. Oh. Uh, yeah. Cracking down the tax authority. So it's a taxation issue. Well, I bet the market will be able to answer this question. And this is very upsetting. Oh, this? Yes. Okay. The reason I included this article about the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, and I have been in the Wienermobile, I will let you all know. That's right a video now, I'd like to see. I, I will let you know that the Wienermobile will now be the Frank Mobile. Boo. And moving from Anthony Wiener to Barney Frank on this is a big, It's. I think it's a big mistake. I assume the reason they didn't want to have Wiener in their name anymore. But the Wiener jokes are the point of the Wienermobile. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes it funny. And the Frankmobile is a, is a lame name. But here's my journalism take on this. Headline, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Hannah Kirby. The Oscar Mayer Wienermobile's name has changed. Here's what to know. Here's what to know. How should I how should I proceed, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, now in this in a in a post Wienermobile world? This is like this makes Axios look like good writing. And what is a funny at best story, right? At best, this is like a ah, oh well that's funny. And this is instead prompts. What is the Wienermobile's new name in bl in black type, in bold type? The Frankmobile. Why was the Wienermobile's name changed? The new name, quote, pays homage to, pays homage to the brand's 100% beef franks and their new recipe, a news release said, also does not include the word wiener in the name, is also probably part of it. Other changes have been made to the vehicle. So this sort of plug-and-play formula journalism, even in a story about a hot dog car, is <laughs> perhaps excessive. So maybe you don't need news you can use when it comes to a story about a wiener joke and a vehicle. A rump. The style section. Excellent. That was really part of our style section, but such a good item from the Daily Mail, and it is one of two, about Deanna O'Donnell, a woman from Lutherville, Maryland, who took to her TikTok. Took to. McCreesh alert. Took, took to. Took to her TikTok and explained that, and this is the headline, I want to wear tight I wear tight booty shorts and a sports bra to the gym. Trolls say I only do it for male attention, but they're so wrong. So wrong. They're so not wrong. just lightly wrong. They are so wrong. I just want to congratulate the Daily Mail of London for having the courage to blow the <laughs> lid off of stories like this. And use a ton of photos. Of booty shorts. Well, you have to. You need multiple pictures of the woman's buttocks. To be you, able to decide yeah, whether like, she's what's doing the it for male like, attention What does the not? sports bra um, really we, look like? Yes. So just, you know. We need to be able to make up our own, our own minds. Why can't, why can't Deanna O'Donnell wear booty shorts and sports bras around without being objectified by the male gaze? She does it not. It's not for you, creeps. And then we had to talk about the Harry and Meghan car. Yep. Alleged car chase. Two-hour car chase. Alleged car chase through packed Midtown Manhattan, where it'd be kind of difficult to have a real car chase. So 
The New York Times writes it up this way. Prince Harry, Meghan, the paparazzi, and a chaotic night in Manhattan. And then the, the sub-headline is, The initial description of the episode in Midtown Manhattan recalled the chase that killed Harry's mother, comma, but the fuller picture was more complicated. Well, remarkably, these people who only wish to be left alone. Yeah, exactly. Were at an event. This and this is very this this one made me laugh out loud. Let's see if I can find it. The episode began Tuesday evening at the Zigfield Ballroom in Midtown, where Harry Meghan and her mother, Doria Raglan, were attending the Women of Vision Awards, <laughs> where Meghan was among the honorees. First of all, real vi- she is a visionary. When when you think about the vision that she had, she saw Harry and married him. So it was real vision that she had for how to become <laughs> way more famous than being on suits on basic cable. So it was a real so she's a real a real visionary. So they're going out. They want that look, I'm sure being hounded is not fun. I'm sure it's bad. We don't know the details of the case. But it sounds like the the taxi driver, the driver called, on us. called BS on this. The be, he had he had the best he line. He said, "Give me a damn break." His name is Mr. Singh. So they, they and here we have our answer with Mr. Singh. Honorifics throughout. Mr. Singh said he would not describe what happened as a chase, though he was not in, involved in much. Lo- he was not involved in the much longer drive earlier in the evening, though the family had clearly been frightened. Mr. Singh said he was not. I wasn't afraid. He said they didn't <laughs> grow up in New York. So anyway, Mr. Singh, you are are wretch. Are, you are a wretch of the week. Yeah, that was good. That was really good. Oh. But this is even better. Where should you live if you want to have a tedious sexual practice that you can annoy all of your friends about? It's the it's the veganism of sexual practices. It's polyamory and the New York Times. This is I can't believe this is a headline in the New York Times. I can. This is the most predictable New York Times headline. Interested in polyamory? Check out these places. So where should you, the New York Times, answering the question for your your life and style. The New York Times did an article on how having a lot of pubic hair is a new Whoa. trend. <laughs> they did. Whoa. Like, of course they're going to do this I'm article. I'm sorry. You, I, I trigger, <laughs> I, I'm triggered when you use the phrase. I don't want to create a permission structure for you to use the phrase I, pubic hair did. without a warning. Okay. That's <laughs> a did. new wretch policy. No. So I am not surprised by this article. So where should you live if you want to be polyamorous? Somerville, Massachusetts. Sounds like a good place to do that. Where else could you be polyamorous? Any other, anything else? I'm just going to guess Utah. Hey, hey. That's, hey, why you got to bring up old stuff? Somerville seems to be really polyamorous. Uh, and we w- we wish them the best in annoying their neighbors, talking about their polyamory. And best of luck, Somerville. Chris, that brings us finally, finally to our obsessions of the week. Do it. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. Mine is, of course, the coverage of the Durham report. The 300 plus page report from special counsel John Durham who concluded a three-plus-year investigation of the origins of the FBI's Russia probe into just the probe known as Crossfire Hurricane into Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. And what I 
really had wanted to see. And so what I did was a compare and contrast of kind of how the the framing of the reporting of the Mueller probe and the Durham probe, which you can argue about, like, which probe was more important and this, that and the other. But the findings were kind of similar in that they both found wrongdoing and misbehavior, but decided not to charge crimes. Okay. Durham did charge people in the course of his investigation. And Mueller but, charged uh, people in the course of his investigation. So, yeah. okay. So I could argue that, like, you should see very similar writing in these. And anyhow. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's the New York Times. I'm going to read the Mueller pro- probe first. The special counsel, Robert S. Mueller III, produced a report of more than 400 pages that painted a deeply unflattering picture of President Trump, but stopped short of accusing him of criminal wrongdoing. Here are seven takeaways. And then on the New York Times' site, there's a searchable Mueller report and 20 key takeaways and this, that, and the other. The whole thing is indexed there for everybody to see and navigate and all of this, okay? Here's the... Durham report. After years of political hype, the Durham inquiry failed to deliver. That's the headline. And that's the main the, bar? That's that is the that story. is the... So there, there are a couple. This is one article, okay. okay? A dysfunctional investigation led by Trump-era special counsel illustrates a dilemma about prosecutorial independence and accountability in politically sensitive matters. The limping conclusion to John H. Durham's four-year investigation of the Russia inquiry underscores a recurring dilemma in American government. How to shield sensitive law enforcement investigations from politics without creating prosecutors who can run amok, never to be held to count. This is a different piece. Got John H. Durham, the Trump-era special counsel who for four years has pursued a politically fraught investigation into the Russia inquiry. Notice the Mueller report was not politically fraught. There was no description of it as that that ever. Accused the FBI of having, quote, discounted or willfully ignored material information that countered the narrative of collusion between Donald J. Trump and Russia in a final report made public Monday. Mr. Durham's 306-page report revealed little substantial new information about the inquiry, known as Crossfire Hurricane, and it failed to produce the kinds of blockbuster revelations accusing the Bureau of politically motivated misconduct that former President Donald J. Trump and his allies suggested Mr. Durham would uncover. Okay, that's the Times. The Washington Post. Let's do the Mueller report first. They had the Mueller report illustrated, and you can still purchase this at oh, the Washington Post wow. site. Like so we will link that. A book. Wow. Written and designed by the Washington Post and illustrated by artist Jan Feint. The Mueller Report Illustrated, the obstruction investigation, brings to life the findings of special counsel Robert S. Mueller III in an engaging and illuminating presentation. Oh, yeah, you got to see it. When it was released on April 18th, Mueller's report laid out two major conclusions, that Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election had been, quote, sweeping and systematic. Got a trailer. And that the evidence, oh yeah, there's like, and there's eight different parts, you can buy the whole thing. And that the evidence did not establish that Trump or his campaign had conspired with the Kremlin. The special counsel left one significant question unanswered, whether the president broke the law by trying to block the probe. Now. They had way too much time to Durham, get ready. Durham, Durham. The report, coming almost four years to the day since Durham's assignment began, 
will probably be derided by Democrats as the end of a partisan boondoggle. Republicans will have to wrestle with a much-touted investigation that has cost taxpayers more than $6.5 million and didn't send a single person to jail, even though Trump once predicted that Durham would uncover, quote, the crime of the century. All right. So I I really like this because I think it showed, like, how really does show how media bias works and how you can, like, create completely different narratives about two pretty similar things. Senator Tommy Tuberville said that he he lost his mind about the Durham report. And and then I basically said something to the effect of that we why do we even bother holding elections? Why do we even bother holding elections in this country if this is the way that the FBI conducts itself? And the Durham report was exactly whatever you wanted it to be, depending on the media, right? Depending on your the frequency that you want to tune in on, it could you, you could be told whatever story that you wanted to tell. I just this is not news, but I do want to credit Durham for doing a thorough, meticulous job, not being weird, chronicling everything. I feel the same thing about Durham that I do about the January sixth committee, which is you got to at some point you have to make a record of all this stuff and you got to put it down. You got to finish the investigation, and it's like the the nine eleven commission. You just at a certain point with things, you have to make a record of this stuff. And for conservatives, or I shouldn't say conservatives, for people on the right who are very angry at Durham for not, you know, frog marching, I don't know who, the James Comey has not been clapped into leg irons and, and taken off to Elba. People who say that Durham failed, people and people on the left who agree that he failed miss the point and it's a willful misreading of what's going on. Another thing that's going on here is playing old clips of what people said earlier, right? Oh, you said this and now it's not true. Some of it is, you know, what they what was done, what CNN, MSNBC, what the Times and the Post said about Mueller that was proven not to be true, the things that they said about these allegations that were proven not to be true were egregious, right? And there was some real cleaning up. This was this this should be should have been, and I don't pretend to know everything that was written. This should have been a good opportunity for reflection and cleanup, right? The smart piece. If I were the editor of a of a of one of these one of these organizations, I would say this is a good opportunity for us to do a little housekeeping, right? Let's take it seriously. Let's break it down. Let's talk about it. Let's not rush to dismiss it. And maybe this kind of work has been done, but this was an opportunity for that. On the other hand, going back and saying that anybody who was was doubtful about George, what was his name? George Papadopoulos, George Papadopoulos, anybody who had questions about George Papadopoulos's claims or Donald Trump's claim, that those people have been obliterated by this report way overcooks it. This is this was this was good, thorough work, and it ought to be treated as good, thorough work. I think the takeaway from these things is that you you have to read them for yourself. Yes. You cannot rely on the media's characterizations of what is in them and come to some of your own conclusions. Word, say word. Yeah. Say word. You're more than just good eyeshadow. You're more oh than just gosh. good eyeshadow. Stop. <laughs> I'm blushing. Is it? Pun intended. OK, it's my obsession which is with the obsession of the others. Well noted was a Washington Post piece by Mark Fisher. End of a love affair, colon, AM radio is being removed from many cars. Well, first of all, it's not being removed. 
It's not being installed in some new cars, but no one is coming to take your AM radio away. This this is the first thing. It's not being taken out of your car. Some new models will not include AM band, and already some models do not include AM band radio. Ford, BMW, Volkswagen, Tesla, and other automakers are eliminating AM radio from some new vehicles, stirring protests, my God, against the loss of a medium that has shaped American life for a century. Now, look, did you grow up listening to radio at all? Yeah. What was the radio station? Do you remember the AM radio stations? No. So for me, we had WWVA, a 50,000-watt blowtorch of country music and talk radio blasting out of Wheeling, West Virginia, and out of St. Louis. And at night, you could get the Cardinals games way across the country because KMOX out of St. Louis was so powerful. AM radio is cool. It was cool. I listened to it. I was a nerd. And I'm all for it. But... People don't need AM radio now like they once did. The, listen to this Listen to this goofy business in the post. The removal of AM radio from cars, where about half of AM listener, listening takes place, half of what? Let's not say the what. Let's not talk about the denominator on that one, has sparked bipartisan protests. Some Democrats are fighting to save stations that are often the only live source of local information during extreme weather, as well as outlets that target immigrant audiences. Well, what do Republicans want to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Some Republicans, meanwhile, claim the elimination of AM radio is aimed at diminishing the reach of conservative talk radio. An AM mainstay from Sean Hannity to Glenn Beck to dozens of acolytes of the late Rush Limbaugh, eight of the country's 10 most popular talk radio shows. Out of how many? Nah, don't worry about it. The automobile, uh, here, here's the quote, the automobile is essential to liberty, right-wing talk show host Mark Levin told his listeners last month. It's freedom. So the control of the automobile is about control of your freedom. They finally figured out how to attack conservative talk radio. So let me get this straight, Mark Levin. We should force automakers to include a product that most people don't want in their cars for, let me check my notes here, for freedom? Freedom demands that you mandate, that the government mandate this? Give me a break. This is like... I love the radio. I love AM radio. I go on AM radio shows all the time. But we're, are we going to target Ford and Volkswagen for not including this feature because it affects immigrant communities and Mark Levin's fight for freedom? <laughs> harumph. Okay. That's a raspberry thank and a you for leading. Thank you for leading us into my favorite <laughs> section of the week, which is reader mail. We have one note from Dan. Hi, Dan. In Cape Coral. Is it Cape Coral or Cape Corral? Well, Cape Coral, but Cape Corral sounds like a sounds like an interesting Coral? men's clothing boutique. Okay. <laughs> Dan says he's formerly from the People's Republic of Minnesota. And Dan says, Dear Mr. Steyerwald, far be it for a refugee from the DFL bastion that is the Iron Range of Minnesota to have the audacity to contradict a wordsmith such as yourself. Uh But after last week's podcast, I felt compelled to address what I understand to be an incorrect assertion regarding the origin of the term jaywalking. I knew I was going to get According, Yes, apparently three others who wrote similar notes. According to sources, which include Cora, language hat, Merriam-Webster, as well as the old Farmer's Almanac at the turn of the last century, J was a derogatory term used to describe a hick, a rube, or more kindly, a country bumpkin unfamiliar with the ways of the big city. 
When these country folk moved to the cities, they ignored such things as crosswalks and would randomly walk into traffic, hence the term jaywalking. In your defense, some sources such as Salem State University make reference to the J shape of walking that you referenced, but the general consensus falls into the rural idiot category. Knowing the pride you both take in assuring your podcast be fact-based, I hope this small nugget will be useful to you both. Thank you for providing one of the best weekly podcasts out there. Your hard work does not go unnoticed. Thank you, Dan. Dan, I got to say, I when I was explaining that, I thought, but there's probably something else. And thank you for offering yes, you something else. You. And I, I apologize for my lack of knowledge. But don't jaywalk anyway. I love jaywalking. Lynn Paget from Virginia writes to say... Chris, I was listening to the podcast Friday afternoon while making chocolate chip cookies. Oh, Delicious. that sounds amazing. Doesn't that sound so good? Sadly, no cookies are included in this email. However, I hope Aww. you will still find it entertaining. When you mentioned Jabots going out of Jabot. style. Jabot. Yes. What the heck is a Jabot? It is. We talked about it last uh, week. <laughs> Put that another. That was another under my don't, don't care, care file. file. Yes, if you, if you think about the jabot, is if you think about old pictures of Abraham Lincoln, it is short of a bow tie. It wraps around the. It's it's a kind of neckerchief. Okay, jabot is going out of style in the 1890s, and said you were willing to bring the jabot back. I couldn't stop laughing. My older son, who is graduating Sunday from St. John's College, nice. has been a longtime Jabot fan and has worn one regularly since his freshman year of college. The timing of your podcast occurred this week, the week that my son sent me a video his friends made called Paget Style. Ah. It's a spoof of the Gangnam Style video by Psy. My son, whose idea of pop culture is firmly anchored in the Victorian era or earlier, was not familiar with the video. Fantastic. Well, I want to send you the entire video, hashtag proud mom. I won't. Why not? But I did take some screenshots that illustrate the jabot as a key dress component of Joseph Paget's style. Attached are four screenshots from the video. Ms. Paget, let me just say, we need the video. I'm looking at the stills here, and it's obviously hilarious and fantastic. And if you do not let your son live his jabot life out loud... You are not only depriving him, you are depriving this great nation of the possibility to see this. So we, I implore you, please share the full video, and we will put it in Hiel Recho's newsletter. Lynn has a PS. She says, I didn't say it, but I love the podcast and look forward to it each week. Put your, you, put your, Put your YouTube link where your mouth is, yes. Ms. Padgett, yes. and send us the full Jabot-based video. That brings us to... Your favorite time of the week, Chris. Oh. I am forced to say something nice, but you are going to lead us by example. A very sweet piece in at Reason Magazine by Glenn Garvin on the passing of one of his old bosses, Hotting Carter III, which is the most Mississippian name possible. This is this, this is maximum Mississippi setting right here. I'm just going to read you the lead a little bit. In 50-plus years of working in journalism, my relationships with bosses were almost always, well, let's say, fraught. But the news that my very first one, Hodding Carter III, died last week broke my heart a little bit. I worked for Hodding Carter at the Delta Democrat Times in Greenville, Mississippi in 1975 and 1976. And he tells the story about flying down because Carter told him, before you come to work here, you better see what this is and where we are before you sign on to anything. So as a kid, the author flies down there 
<clears throat> on a so on a Sunday after I arrived at my fellowship in Indiana, I flew down to Greenville's tiny airport where Hanning picked me up. We got into his car and he promptly handed me a beer. I was startled to say the least. Daytime drinking during my first meeting with a new boss in a car? Was this a test to which the correct answer was no? Uncertainly, I accepted the beer and away we went. The surprises continued. And he goes on He goes on from there. It's just a great read. And I know that there may be somebody out there who's thinking about working in the news business, young people who are, and by the way, it's May and it's people are looking for jobs and all that stuff. This is a, a strong urge from me to take a weird job. Find a weird job in news somewhere where somebody will pay you. And it's even better if it's someplace where you're not familiar and you're not entirely comfortable. Get out there, mix it up, find your own Hotting Carter III and get an education. Get paid, not much, but get paid to get an education. Chris, my favorite item which is like a backhanded favorite item, we're going to reverse engineer this one, is the Wired profile of Pete Buttigieg by Virginia Heffernan. And thank you, Keith, for flagging this in our emails, because this is the opposite of what a journalistic profile should be. So I just, just read the headline. So just read this and see how not to write a profile. Read the headline. Oh, it's absolutely incredible. The headline is, Pete Buttigieg loves God, beer, and his electric Mustang. Sure, the Secretary of Transportation has thoughts on building bridges, but infrastructure occupies just a a sliver of his voluminous mind. Okay, that's not even the best part. This quote is unbelievable. As Secretary Buttigieg and I talked in his under-furnished corner office one afternoon in early spring, I slowly became aware that his cabinet job requires only a modest portion of his cognitive powers. Other mental facilities, no kidding, are apportioned to the Iliad, Puritan historiography, and Nausgaard Spring, though not in the original Norwegian, slacker. Fortunately, he was willing to devote yet another apse in his cathedral mind to making his ideas about three mighty themes, neoliberalism, masculinity, and Christianity, Sweet, intelligible to me. It's so bad, it's good. Had Sweet, to be my favorite fancy item. fancy Moses. Had to be. And then, oh my, and the pictures are, wow. Just, way to go, Wired. You really, you really, it's like you took Sean McCreasy's Sean McCreasy's rules for writing a good profile and intentionally violated each of them as you went. This is a real stink fest. And that is all we all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at rutches at nebulouspodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter over on our website at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Inkstain Rutches from Nebulous Media. Produced by Colin Chicola. Magneto. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.